But I think about being with my children, camping with them, being in a tent and those late night conversations, the ways that we didn't have the distraction of video games or phones or, you know, you know, any of the usual distractors and the depth of connection through the kinds of questions that they asked me through the ways that I was able to take my time and respond to them um, were moments that strengthened our relationship that I'll never forget. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Rumap is finding her joy and breaking barriers just by taking a hike. Map is challenging the idea that the outdoors are just for white people. In 2009, she founded Outdoor Afro to, quote, reconnect black people with the outdoors through outdoor education, recreation, and conservation. Today, Outdoor Afro is a national nonprofit operating in 60 cities with more than 100 volunteers, leading 60,000 participants on everything from strolls in the forest to bird walks to climbs of Mount Kilimanjaro in Africa. RUMAP's efforts have brought her to the attention of the White House when she was invited to participate in America's Great Outdoors Conference, which led her to take part in the launch of former First Lady Michelle Obama's Let's Move initiative. She's taken Oprah Winfrey hiking and met with the current Interior Secretary. Mapp was named a National Geographic Fellow, a Heinz Award honoree, and a recipient of the National Wildlife Federation Communication Award. Rumap has a new book, Nature Swagger, Stories and Visions of Black Joy in the Outdoors. It's a collection of essays and photos of black people that's intended to, quote, inspire black communities to reclaim their place in the natural world. Rumap, welcome to the Vermont Conversation. Thank you so much for having me. You have been in the world of the outdoors, having you founded Outdoor Afro in 2009. Let me just start there. Why did you found Outdoor Afro? What was the inspiration for you? Well, you know, all my life, I had a really incredible connection to nature um, through many different channels. But the, the way that I really deeply connected to nature was through my family. And my parents had a ranch up in Lake County, California. I grew up in open California, um, but this ranch was about 100 miles north of where we were. And being that my parents were from the south, they had grown up with a connection to nature that they brought with them when they migrated to California. And they were able to live the outdoor lifestyle at that ranch. My dad, he was a hunter. He loved to fish, garden. It was really the site of like a hobby farm. However, it was also a site of some really incredible hospitality. People from all over our community would be welcome to join us. And my dad had a very famous saying in our family, and that was, you have a standing invitation. When people would be leaving, he would just remind them that. And that meant that once welcomed, you were always welcomed. And that hospitality, that welcoming, the kind that really fills your cup, is really the value that sits at the heart of what Outdoor Afro is all about. So fast forward to 2009, I just sat down at my kitchen table and wanted to tell the story of my family, but also in all the other ways that I was able to grow in nature through Girl Scouts and Outward Bounds, how outdoors really helped to improve my life and my, my hope and dreams for how it could be more accessible for people who look like me. And what I found was that my story was not some one-off isolated story, that there were so many people who had the same life experience, but that experience was not depicted in the glossy magazines of the day. It was not a part of our national narrative to just even think about Black people and their connection to the outdoors. And so I set about trying to change the narrative of who we imagine gets outside 
And I also wanted to tell just a whole different story than what we had come to believe. And as the years have gone by, I've met many incredible people and I began an organization that's getting people into the outdoors. And altogether, we have seen that shift of who we imagine gets outside. And so I am here to not only offer hospitality through the work, but also to lift up a representation of Black people in the outdoors as strong, beautiful, and free. I want to um, go back to your dad. You write, my dad was a Black man from the Jim Crow South with an eighth grade education who had the audacity to create a place like this in a nearly all-white town. Um, everything about that image that you conjured, this little kind of gentleman's ranch, um, the all-white, I mean, none of it kind of is a natural, you know, a, a place that we think of black families. Where did your dad get the idea to kind of shatter that facade and take your family to this small town? Well, you know, um, my father's no longer living, um, and there's still lots of questions I wish I could ask him as I've grown in greater understanding and appreciation for his journey. Um, but I know that his determination to connect with the outdoors and to find his peace was so strong. You know, it was, it was the way he was able to be fully expressed and free. And I just remember, you know, he would go up for weeks at a time and it was, you know, his laboratory in a lot of ways. It was a place for him to, you know, be the outdoorsman that he couldn't be in urban Oakland. Um, it was a place for him to build and create. You know, it was his true outlet that I think counterbalanced whatever else might have been going on in his life that was challenging. He always had that place as a refuge. And the level of generosity, it wasn't like this is a place just for me. He wanted to share that experience with other people. And I just think, and, and to be clear, he was absolutely an outlier. I mean, there are people in our family to this day who remark on how my dad built his life, literally from his hands and the smarts that it required. And he had this, this uh, saying, my family had this saying, it's called mother wit, you know, like you can have book education, but you're not going to go too far if you don't also have mother wit and mother wit was really a, a a way of conveying wisdom and confidence and just a overall emotional intelligence um, that helps you to navigate through the world uh, with you know a high level of of ease and you know I just to this day feel that his life and what he created is so much inspiration for why I do Outdoor Afro, because not everyone's gonna have access to a family ranch, but in our own way through this organization, we are recreating that standing invitation for people who may otherwise not have access or can't begin to think about how they may connect to the outdoors. And when they go on an Outdoor Afro experience, I remember every time that feeling that my dad instilled in me and so many others in our community. You've said that the outdoors are not a place that Black people have seen themselves before. What have been the obstacles, both structural and personal, that have made the outdoor spaces unwelcoming? Well, I think, you know, to get specific, the outdoors are welcoming, <laughs> you know, I, the trees don't know what color you are, okay? The flowers are gonna bloom no matter how much money's in your account. The birds are gonna sing no matter who you voted for. So the outdoors is not at fault. <laughs> mm -hmm. it, it's people and policies. Um, and we can turn to, you know, our grandparents' era of a Jim Crow reality that had signs that said, you cannot swim at this pool you cannot recreate at this public area. Um, so those were real structural barriers for people that existed for a long time. 
But one of the things that I also like to remind people is that alongside that exclusion, alongside that blatant racist reality was a perseverance among black people to find their places of purpose in nature. And there were families that came together and purchased land similarly in the way that my dad did and created these places for people to come and recreate. And we have, you know, the legacy of Lincoln Hills. We have the Inkwell in Martha's Vineyard, Lake Idlewide, and it goes, it goes, you know, on and on. There are so many places where people were able to find their peace and their justice and their joy. And these were places that had outfitters, gear and equipment for sale. There were innkeepers, restaurateurs. So these are also contributors to the outdoor economy as we know it. And so I think it's really important to, yes, recognize that there were structural and, and violent ways that Black people were excluded from the outdoors, but there was a persistence to pursue the outdoors for the kind of joy and peace and healing and camaraderie that we all want in our outdoor experiences. And I also think about people in our, our you know, national history, people like Harriet Tubman, people like George Washington Carver, people who innovated and had a knowledge, a grounded knowledge of the outdoors and nature in order to help people be better farmers, but also to help people become free. And so that, you know, I feel like Nature Swagger stands on the shoulders of that persevering joy and history of connection to the outdoors. You describe Harriet Tubman as a wilderness leader. And I found that so interesting because we know her story as mm -hmm. a social justice trailblazer, mm -hmm. but you reframe that because you remind us that a lot of what she was doing was navigating, you know, forbidding and uncharted wilderness. Talk about Har reclaiming Harriet Tubman as, as a pioneer outdoors woman. Well, she had many accomplishments. Um, and, and the thing I, I really love when I think about Harriet Tubman is, you know, I just, I just try to imagine, you know, what she had to know, what she had to be able to teach people about the wild, because we're talking about life or death. You know, you, you had to be undetectable. You had to be undetectable in the cover of night. You had to know what could be used as food or leave behind because it's poison. You had to know the call of wildlife and how to not startle it as, you know, so as to not alert others to your presence. And so that kind of connection, if you really think about it, had to come from that, from a deep connection and knowingness, that nature knowledge. And really, I mean, that's what nature swagger is all about. It's about, you know, what you know and also how you can apply it in your to your life in order to connect with yourself, but also to solve problems and to understand your 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 rightful place on this earth. So I really appreciate the ways that you know we can rethink people like Harriet Tubman um, without diminishing the important contributions. In fact, if we think of her in this way as a wilderness leader, it's a way of elevating her to even higher heights um, as we imagine what connections to nature can result in for people through a meaningful connection. Talk a little bit about your own introduction to the outdoors post your family's ranch you talk about uh, what you call a capstone experience that you had in the early 90s uh, on a mountaineering trip with Outward Bound. Um, and, you know, it was bittersweet. It was, of course, thrilling to be in this landscape, but you were the only black woman in your group. And uh, full disclosure, back in the day, I was a 
mountaineering instructor for Outward Bound. <laughs> so okay. I, um, I can imagine what you're describing, but tell me what that was like for you. Well, after, you know, having so many like foundational experiences in the outdoors with my family, I found that I wanted to continue to explore the outdoors with affinity groups and, and in specialized ways. So I was a Girl Scout. Um, and that's what really helped me to appreciate the power of being in a group of people who you could connect with um, around a certain identity um, to be able to feel more confident and develop leadership. And so I loved continuing to build on my outdoor journey with various groups. And I was in my early 20s and discovered Outward Bound. And of course, I looked at all the glossy um, pictures and, and the smiles and the helmets, and I thought, I can do that. And I was definitely in for quite an awakening. Um, I came from an outdoor loving family, but certainly my family were not mountaineers. They never thought of themselves as hikers or campers. Um, so these were new experiences for me. And I remember all the gear and equipment that I had to purchase that I'd never heard of before or didn't understand the utility for. It was the time when you had to, you know, buy boots and break them in and rub them down with an oil. And they, they were probably 20 pounds each. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, it was, it was, it was a time of, of a steep amount of intimidation just with gear and equipment. But when I got into the experience, I recognized quickly that I had a real fear of heights and I had no experience climbing, but that's what this trip was all about. And so we were set to um, climb up a mountain and stay overnight at the summit. And I didn't bring a headlamp because I had a flashlight. I mean, why do I need a headlamp and a flashlight? Well, you know, you need your hands free when you're climbing. I learned that quickly. So I was sent up um, before the sun was going to go down beyond the mountain. And I started on the mountain and was going really slow. Um, very afraid. Just as I climbed higher, the more my anxiety, uh, ratcheted up and halfway up, I just froze. I just didn't feel like I could do this anymore. The sun had gone down beyond the mountain. It was dark. I couldn't see below me anymore. I couldn't see ahead of me anymore. And I was definitely in a breakdown mode, crying. And my instructor, he said three magic words to me from above. He was like, Rue, trust your feet. And there's something like a key that unlocks a door um, happened. And I was able to move my body with my own physical strength up to the top. And I tell you that that was the moment, that was exactly what I needed to learn at the precipice of adulthood, that I could trust my feet. And when I reflect on how my life has gone, and, and certainly I've had moments where I didn't know what just happened, uh, and I didn't have a clear view of what lie ahead, that I knew that I could trust my feet to just continue to move forward. And that was exactly, that was exactly what nature taught me. And that's when I understood the power of nature as a teacher. So as I, you know, continued on with my, my explorations with nature, I became really in tune with what it was that I'm here to learn about, um, about myself, about the natural world, and how do I take those lessons and apply them deliberately uh, so that I can live a life that is in more harmony with whatever my goals are, but also with the natural world. Hmm. I think that you really capture what I think is one of the powerful things in the outdoors is that idea that a simple focusing of the mind, you know, your instructor saying, trust your feet, teaches you to navigate in life. You know, I mean, trust is such a key part of what he was telling you there, you know, believe that this will work out. 
um, I, I recall a similar thing when I was learning to rock climb and I was, it was my first time lead climbing and I was panicked halfway up the climb and I looked over to my friend who was a veteran climber, basically probably with a look of sheer terror. I didn't need to say anything. <laughs> and he said two words, keep going, keep going. Mm -hmm. And in my whole life, I hear him telling me, keep going. Every time I hit a difficult moment, it just comes down to that. Keep going. That's right. So I'm, I'm with, life. I'm with you on that mountain with trust your feet. Yeah. Life's <laughs> going to give you climbs, honey. <laughs> um, so there was the thrill of summiting that day, but also the isolation that you felt. As you write, the isolation I felt as a young black woman still trying to navigate young adulthood in a new remote wilderness setting with people who shared cultural experiences different from my own. So what was your takeaway from that as you contemplated both the thrill of a personal accomplishment, but also that isolation? Yeah, and I will, you know, also point out that while, you know, I definitely felt my difference, I also felt some tremendous connection as well. Um, and I just, you know, recognizing where I was at that age, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't um, skilled and experienced in, in, you know, being with lots of different types of people to know how to navigate that. Um, and so I just imagine, you know, I, I go back to that, you know, 20 year old, 21 year old self and recognize, you know, that, you know, I still had a lot more life experience ahead of me. And it was somewhat of a shock to my system in some ways to be in this remote area and with people who may not, you know, understand the vernacular, the regional specificity and the cultural experiences that I had. But on the other hand, um, there were people who I stayed in touch with for many years through that experience. And I know that, and this keeps coming up as a theme, like I know that when I experienced, you know, expeditions or significant outdoor experiences with people who were very different from me, today, I'm much more aware of how close it brings me to people. Um, how I'm able to just transcend all of the things that matter at home uh, and really get into the kind of partnership and trust and collaboration um, that's needed uh, to be successful really in any outdoor experience. What has been, what is your hope in writing Nature Swagger, which comes out today? Yay, yes. I mean, my hope um, is twofold. One is I really want, and this is what's been true about the work of Outdoor Afro, is to tell a new narrative about Black people and their relationship with the outdoors. You know, there's so many stereotypes that persist that people have just bought into. Um, there are questions to this day that I still get from people who say, well, I never see black people outside um, or black people don't do, you know, certain activities um, like hiking or camping. Uh, and so what I want to do is really disrupt those assumptions and also lift up a representation of black people in the outdoors as ordinary um, and, and versus exceptional. Um, I think that there's this assumption that when you do see a black person, that there's some exceptional moment that we're experiencing. And I've always thought about my work as a, as a way of helping us move toward ordinary. I mean, the day that we go out and we see people outside enjoying the outdoors in proportion to their population and their opportunity, and it's no big deal, is what this work is oriented towards, while also recognizing, just as I did as a young girl, the importance of being in nurturing affinity groups 
that help you feel confident and more sure-footed about being in the outdoors so that you can continue to expand your outdoor experiences into other places, with other people, or even by yourself. Rue, I wanna pick up on your title and black joy is a theme woven throughout your book. What does black joy mean to you? You know, I think black joy, especially in the context of so much that we have been talking about um, with greater intensity um, over the last decade of my life and especially over the last year is a couple of years, um, is really for me become this mantra as an overcoming testimony. One that is not locating the black body and black people in peril and pain, but instead in our joy. You know, there's, I just felt like there was this pervasive public narrative that, you know, starts with enslavement and ends with George Floyd, and there's nothing in between. There's nothing in between to talk about. And I, you know, with, you know, the solemn, you know, a way that, you know, we should approach that which we are ashamed and where there has been, you know, systemically bad things that have happened to black people. I think that we also owe it to ourselves to talk about and lift up that which people persevered through. And there are so many stories of people who, as my parents would say, make a way out of no way. People who, who really, you know, were in the worst of times and still found a connection and a way of living, you know, through the outdoors that gave them life and purpose, even prosperity. And those are the stories that continue to be a part of our reality today. And so the book is filled with folks who, you know, may be accomplished in their professional life, but they're the unsung stories. They're not necessarily the people who've climbed the tallest mountain or hiked the, the farthest trail. These are people who have easily and quietly, in many cases, woven outdoor experiences into their everyday lives um, or who reference this powerful connection in their lives as a way of living much, much more empowered, much more joyful, and who also have a story to tell that's the same story um, in, in spirit as my father's story. There are many beautiful essays in your book uh, by um, writers sharing what gives them joy. And I wonder if you could uh, describe one of them for our listeners to give them an idea of what it is you're trying to lift up. Yeah, I mean, for so many people like myself, they had meaningful experiences in the outdoors that, you know, they never really perhaps felt they had a platform to elevate uh, their stories and how significant those stories are in their own lives. And I, I love the story that it, well, first of all, I love all the stories, <laughs> full stop. Um, but everyday family nature with Pandora Thomas, who, who has purchased this beautiful farm in Sonoma, California called Earthseed. She doesn't really talk about her work today. She talks about this little place under the bridge and how she and her siblings would pile in their family's Cadillac with their cute little Afros and bell bottoms and go down to this place under the bridge and do fishing or collect rocks. And, you know, it's a, it's a, it's lovely story in that it really talks about those quiet moments, you know, that key that fits perfectly into a lock that let you know why you're here. And as we get older, those moments become more significant in our lives and our moments that we hope to recreate not only for ourselves and our 
but for our communities. And that's what she was able to do through the work that she does today through uh, Earthseed is her organization. But I love how she just, you know, connected those dots in such an elegant way. And it, it helps people to think about what ordinary moments they may be a part of or creating for themselves or for their children that can be a meditation for a lifetime. A number of the writers um, refer to a touchstone experience, and that is climbing Mount Kilimanjaro in Tanzania with an outdoor Afro group. Um, Tell us about that journey and what it meant to you and what it meant to some of the others on that trip. Well, I didn't have the chance to go on the trip. Um, By this time, I was actually running the organization um, called Outdoor Afro. Um, But what we did was uh, support uh, the first ever all-Black-led, all-Black participant trip to Mount Kilimanjaro. And what we learned and discovered in advance of that trip was that we had to use different language about this experience. In the traditional climbing community um, up to that time, there was this um, language that was pretty pervasive highlighting uh, conquering, you know, we're going to bag that mountain, you know, it was about, it was about, you know, this summit moment as the definition of success, summiting meaning you got to the, you know, the absolute top. And what we did in advance of this trip was really think about what our goals were. And what we came away with was a realization that we wanted to be in relationship with that mountain. And not just in relationship with that mountain, but the people, the culture. And what this group who were comprised of outdoor Afro volunteers who decided on what their capstone experience would be that year, what they did was to immerse themselves into the culture and also the cultures of the people who were there to support the experience. So there are what we what are called porters uh, who help with various aspects of trip trip support, and even they had a very different experience with outdoor Afro because they felt connected with in a deliberate way uh, through their culture and. And just, you know, the landscape in a much more relational way versus conquering this mountain. And the other piece that this group came away with was recognizing that the moment of a summit is going to look different for every person. And what you'll find in the book is a story by Leandra Taylor that talks about a definition of summit that's really different than what we imagine it to be. And for many in that group, uh, they did not necessarily reach the top of that mountain, but they all reached their own personal summit. And that summit may have occurred before (laughs) reaching the top of that mountain. Um, But summit to this group came to be identified as your peak of transformation. And that could occur really at any point in that expedition. One of the things that jumped out at me in Leandra Taylor's description of her ascent, and this harkens back to your experience uh, climbing a mountain with Outward Bound, she was, as many people are on Kili, which is very high altitude, she got very sick. And uh, she crawled in her tent, you know, thought she was going to die. And... um, her African guide told her three things, just focus on three things, eat, eat more, drink more, and stop thinking so much. <laughs> and she, she, she uh, you know, kind of celebrates that advice as kind of life advice that she exactly. took away from that mountain. Exactly. <laughs> One of the things that you do and that Outdoor Afro does are healing hikes. Talk a little bit about what those are. Yeah, so I, um, you know, our office is in downtown uh, Oakland, and uh, we've we've seen lots of 
you know, social, political unrest uh, throughout the years um, of, of my life living there um, for different reasons. And it was in 2014 when it, it seemed like every city was erupting um, after what had happened in Ferguson. And I, I was leaving my office one day and I'm hearing helicopters, you know, positioning themselves overhead and I can hear the plywood being applied on storefronts. Everyone's like bracing and expecting violence. And I'd reached the time of life where, you know, I just wanted to do something different. And especially as a black woman leading a black focused organization, connecting people to outdoor spaces, you know, I was, I was not clear about what, what and how um, I should, you know, show up as in this moment. And as I'm leaving my office, you know, the answer just came to me. And it was so clear. It was you do nature, Rue. That is your lane. And so that weekend, I assembled about 30 people and we went up to the Redwoods of the Oakland Hills. And we began with our opening circle where we, of course, said our names and where we're from, our favorite nature place. And as we went down into that Redwood Bowl, and this is not a group of all black people. Um, there were different ages, different uh, opinions about what was happening in the world. But as we were winding ourselves down on that trail through that Redwood Bowl, I could just, just experience like the tension falling off people. And there was laughter and there was connection happening. And we got all the way down to this place um, on the trail uh, that intersects with a stream and it's, it's um, called the Stream Trail. And we stopped there to hydrate and get a snack. And I had this moment, this moment of revelation I'll never forget. And that was recognizing that we were doing what black people have always known we could do. And that was to lay down our burdens down by the riverside. And that was another moment of learning and connection that helped me to understand that nature was a healer. And so we have been deliberately sharing this healing hike as a theme and a model for the volunteers who we train every year as one way that they can activate our community and also get out you know, for their own benefit to recognize the power of nature as both a healer and a connector. Have you done these hikes? What are some other times? I mean, there have been some, you know, big moments of trauma, George Floyd, other things. Tell me about how else you've used healing hikes and what you've observed to be their effect. Yeah, I mean, What's been beautiful is that people activate healing hikes around whatever is troubling them. It could be something that's hyper-local that's happening. Um, it could be something very personal that's happening, um, or it can be, you know, in response to what's happening nationally or globally. Um, and I was definitely, if, if I could, you know, be thankful for anything, during that time of the pandemic that intersected with what had happened with George Floyd, I was grateful. I was grateful that we had a way through our community to show up, to find healing and find connection in a time when there was, there was so much that we couldn't do, you know, the, the stores were closed, the places of worship were closed. You know, you couldn't go visit grandma. We had to rethink holidays and so on. Everything was closed. 
But I realized quickly that nature never closes. And for me, that was the balm that got me through alongside, of course, writing this book um, and Outdoor Afro as an organization because of our practice of thinking about connections to nature as a way of healing, we were ready. And our community flocked to us with, you know, um, great, you know, greater number um, than we'd ever experienced before. And we were there with open arms um, for those who, you know, maybe did not want to show up in the streets in the way that protest was happening. We were there to remind people of not only the healing that they could experience, you know, in community, but also for themselves to get through what was absolutely a tough time for everyone. There's a photo in Nature Swagger of uh, a group of black men and women wearing black t-shirts that say, I'm black and I swim. I know that there's a lot behind that statement. Tell us about yeah. swimming yeah. and Black people. Well, I had the privilege of uh, being a part of a fellowship. Um, and this was back in uh, 2018. And the big theme of this fellowship was planet or plastics. And I sat with that statement and realized, uh-oh, we can't start there because I was very aware of the startling statistic that black children between the ages of five and 19 were drowning at five and sometimes six times the rate of white children in the same age group. And as we know, those there were signs that said, you cannot swim here, you cannot be at this beach that existed you know, in the mid, through the mid 20th century. And so this is our inheritance. We have a whole generation and others that have followed that do not know how to swim. And I knew that if a child doesn't know how to swim, they're not gonna ease into a tippy kayak. They're not gonna put a pole in a lazy lake. And they're certainly not gonna give a damn about plastic in the ocean. And so I knew that it was important for Outdoor Afro to leverage its resources in any way to help every child and their caregiver in our sphere of influence learn how to swim, to save lives, of course, but also help people be in relationship with water in a way that would raise their consciousness to protect it. And so that's, that's something I'm really proud of through Outdoor Afro that we've given hundreds of what we call swimmerships um, that get those babies in the water. And those t-shirts um, that we gave out and also that we sold are just emblematic of making a statement that, yeah, I'm black and I swim. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so, um, you know, it's a, it's, it's a, a beautiful affirmation as well as a rally cry to help people really think about whether or not they know how to swim. And certainly Outdoor Afro is here to help out if they can't. Um, tell me about uh, taking Oprah Winfrey free on a hike. Uh, what was the uh, inspiration for that? What'd you do? Yeah, I mean, I'm literally like, imagine me in my kitchen on a Sunday morning, stirring a pot of grits, just enjoying a Sunday morning with my then fiance, who is now my husband. And I see that, you know, I'm getting a call from a Chicago area code. <laughs> <laughs> and I answer the phone and someone's talking in coded language about coming to the Bay Area, their boss is coming to the Bay Area, they're interested in doing some kind of nature activity, and they wanted to do it with our group, possibly. And I just locked in talking about 
the things about nature that I found healing. Of course, I talked about our healing hikes. I talked about the importance of the redwoods in our region and how they have regenerated after being clear cut in the mid 1800s in service of the demand for wood to build houses for gold miners and prospectors. And so I just talked about healing, talked about my connection, and I was also sworn to secrecy, <laughs> to not talk about these early plans with anyone, but that it could happen in less than five days, that I would be doing some activity with their boss. Now, of course, I knew that Oprah was coming to town <laughs> and I quickly figured out that the boss was Oprah and they didn't was... actually tell you that it was Oprah Winfrey. Nope. And so <laughs> so I began mobilizing um, close friends and family who I did not tell were going to meet Oprah. And we joined together on a Friday morning and Oprah arrives. And it was really a beautiful moment for a lot of reasons. We all have grown up with Oprah as someone who's been a part of our homes, a part of our lives and, you know, so many iconic memory of who Oprah is. Um, but I am, you know, I'm, I'm thankful that I had the chance to experience nature with her and in that experience, she was really everything we imagined her to be. She was warm. She was uh, loving. You know, she went around and hugged everybody in the group. And I felt like she had for herself in the middle of, you know, her big tour, she was able to enjoy nature and to have that break and to have that moment of contemplation as just another person in the group and not, you know, this iconic celebrity that we all think of her as. I really had a chance to connect with her as a human. And I'm, you know, forever grateful for that experience. It went by so fast, as you can imagine. Um, but for me, it was, it was yet another example of nature as an equalizer. And it has been, it, it has repeated itself, this lesson and this theme many times um, as I've had the chance to hike and be in nature with all kinds of people that there's something about being in nature that levels the playing field for everyone. Is there one moment that stands out for you of a time in nature with someone that just always comes to mind as what the importance of your work is. Wow. I mean, I've got, I've got a huge library of moments by now. Um, and oftentimes, you know, those moments, um, they come, you know, you don't know how important they are until much later. But I think about being with my children camping with them, being in a tent and those late night conversations, the ways that we didn't have the distraction of video games or phones or, you know, you know, any of the usual distractors and the depth of connection through the kinds of questions that they asked me through the ways that I was able to take my time and respond to them um, were moments that strengthened our relationship that I'll never forget. And so I really feel like for me, nature has been this platform for deeper connection between me and other people. And, you know, even with my husband right now, we, you know, we continue to go into nature experiences to not only just get away from it all, but to get deeper in our connection with each other. And I, I'm, I'm really privileged because when you have so many nature experiences like that, it fills your cup. It, it really helps you to be resilient uh, in light of whatever life's challenges might be um, and gives you also something to look forward to um, when you need an escape. And so for me, I, I just 
you know, I, I, I'm constantly building out this library of experiences, but the, the running theme through them all are how deeply I'm able to connect with people. And I, you know, I hunt and fish too. And that has also been an incredible experience of connecting with people who are in different geographic areas um, than from where I come, um, who might have a different um, political persuasion than me. And there's something that has happened to me several times through those experiences, you know, in places like Wyoming um, or Kansas, where that connection is so deeply felt because, you know, the, the rallying moment is, you know, when you are able to be in a blind, quietly sitting with someone as the sun rises and the world wakes up, there's something so intimate about that experience. And when you're successful in that experience, that joy, the, the feeling that someone is just happy for you is, it's soul stirring. And I can tell you that the people that I've had nature experiences with, no matter if it's been through expedition, through fishing, through hunting trips, have allowed me to connect with people in a way that I don't know I would have a chance to connect with in my day-to-day -day life. And I think we need more of that in this society. We get in our, you know, bubble of people who agree with us, who, who are people who we, you know, feel like will be safe for us. Um, but my connections to nature have disrupted a lot of those assumptions about who I can connect with and have earned me some lifelong friends in the process. Well, Rumap, I want to thank you for joining us on the Vermont Conversation. Thank you so much for having me.